Coming up on this episode, a quick look back at the Warriors' thrilling one-point win over the Sacramento Kings. On Wednesdays, Clay Thompson's heroics lifts the Warriors to a 4 and one start. Yes, welcome back to the Golden State with Mates podcast. It is about 6.30 in the morning for me. I woke up about five minutes ago, so hopefully I sound sprightly enough. It does take me a little while to get going in the morning, but it's hard not to when we get to talk about the Warriors' extraordinary win yesterday over the Sacramento Kings, a 102-101 victory on the back of a Clay Thompson game winner with 0.2 seconds remaining. A thrilling game, not the most eye-catching, pleasing game from an offensive standpoint, that's for sure. Both teams kind of struggled throughout the game, and particularly in the second half. But at the end of the day, Clay calls game. Tough mid-range jumper over Davion Mitchell with Keegan Murray trailing as well. And Clay, he's just a he's a tough shot taker and he's a tough shot maker. And I'm sure we'll get into his game. It wasn't his best, but he came up when it mattered most. As I said, a pretty uh, pretty defensive minded game. Uh, both teams really struggling to find an offensive rhythm throughout. The Warriors started the game really well, but then the Kings bench kind of responded. Malik Monk three late in the first period gave them a three point lead. They maintained their lead at six, kind of halfway through the second quarter before the Warriors responded themselves late in the uh, the second half with a 12-3 run, run. Went up by one at halftime. And then the Warriors, who had gone into the third quarter with a net rating of 45.6, easily the best in the league after the first four games, well, the Kings sought to uh, put an end to that. They came out on a very quick, I think it was 13-2 run or something like, 14-2 run or something like that. Went up by 11 pretty early in the third quarter. The Warriors were limited limited to just 17 points in that third period. But to be fair, they were able to kind of scratch and claw their way back into the game. They got back within one late in the third quarter, ended up being uh, one, point down, uh, one point down at one stage and then down by five, 79-74, heading to the third quarter. And then the fourth quarter was really, a uh, again, a back-and-forth affair. The Warriors quickly erased. The deficit went back in front. Um, they were up 92-89 at one point, I think, with was it three minutes and 33 seconds to go or something. Looked fairly comfortable at that point. Obviously, the Kings playing without De'Aaron Fox. And then uh, the Kings, again, responded, went up three themselves. Um, but the Warriors, who had struggled somewhat offensively throughout the night, were able to get some things going. They were able to make their last few shots. Started with a, a Gary Payton, the second little flip shot, which was actually a pretty tough one over Sabonis with a minute remaining. That cut the lead to one. Warriors got a stop on the other end. Steph Curry comes down, makes his own own little flip, floater, layup, whatever you want to call it, at the rim, gives the Warriors the lead, and then DeMarcus Sabonis regains the lead for Sacramento on the other end with a mid-range bank jumper, which was ugly, I would call it. But it went in, and it would have been hard to have lost on that uh, on that possession, on, on that shot, because, again, it was, was pretty ugly. I'm, I don't think he called bank by any means. Um, but if it goes in, it goes in. Well done to him. He had, he had a good game, Sabonis, without Fox. 23-11 and 8 assists. I thought he was quite impressive and maybe put away some of the demons that he's had 
playing the Warriors in recent times. Although the Kings, from a, from a team perspective, they must be getting sick of Golden State. This is the Warriors' sixth win in the last seven outings against the Kings. And if you include preseason, it's actually eight of the last nine. If we go back, the Kings obviously had that 2-0 lead in the first round series. And then the Warriors win four of the next five to win in seven. And then two preseason games in these two games to start the regular season. So the Warriors have certainly got the wood over the Kings, which is really uh, going against this so-called rivalry because uh, I think if a rivalry is so one-sided, it's not necessarily a rivalry, that's for sure. Uh, but then down the other end, so I was surprised that Steve didn't take a timeout for starters, particularly once Steph got double-teamed, he had to give up the ball, which was not surprising. The Kings had been doing that all night to him. Draymond was kind of left open briefly at the top of the perimeter uh, when Steph got double-teamed. We know Dre's not necessarily going to be taking a three. That's not what you want. But he gives the ball up to Clay, who receives the ball on the wing five seconds left. Uh, and then a couple of power dribbles left, pull up mid-range, as I said, over Mitchell. Keegan Murray was kind of... I'm not sure Clay would have seen Keegan Murray, but he was actually fairly close to the play. Uh, and it was butter. And it was beautiful. And the thing with Clay, right, so he had a, a poor game, you could say, like offensively. Defensively, I think he had three blocks. Like he was actually pretty good defensively. Some of his help defense uh, on, on Sabonis was pretty – he had that block late, which was pretty big. Uh, but, you know, he's 6 of 15 from the floor. Before that shot, he's 5 of 14 uh, in the game. The thing with Clay is, and I think what we need to remember – in every game that he plays. And I know there's been some concerns with his form and there's actually been some question marks about whether he should be in closing lineups. Well, at the end of the day, he's the Warriors' second-best shot maker behind Steph. He still is. And so you have to have him out there at the end of games because inevitably Steph is going to be trapped like this and you need another bailout option. What If, if Clay's not on the floor in that situation, who are you you're looking to? Is it Chris Paul? Maybe, but that's not ideal. Again, you don't want Draymond... GP2 was the other one out there. That's why I was surprised, like, there's no timeout and you don't throw Moody out there uh, or another offensive-minded option. But Clay, you want out there in that scenario because he's the second guy that you want to take the shot right. Dre realizes that, gets the ball to him, and he and he makes a tough play, which is what he does. And the sheer threat of Clay Thompson, I think, still sends shivers down the spine of opposition defenses. It doesn't matter how he's been shooting the ball in that game doesn't matter how he's been shooting the ball on the season. Whenever Clay Thompson puts up a shot, you think it's going in. I still think it's going in every time he shoots the shoots it, uh, regardless of what kind of shot it is, how tough it is. And now there might be some concerns over his shot selection at times. I think it's actually been generally pretty good in the last few games. I think his decision-making, I've spoke about that. I think it's been pretty underrated. But he's he's not shooting the ball overly well. We haven't seen any of the 25, 30-point Clay Thompson games where he makes seven or eight threes. Like, he only makes one three in this one on four attempts. But still, he's someone the defense is never going to leave open at any point. They are going to fully respect Clay Thompson until the point he retires. They really will. Because I don't think his skill set, I don't think his three-point shooting is going to decline in any way. And he, as one of the top three shooters, top five shooters, whatever you want to call it, of NBA history, that alone gives him the respect of it 
of NBA defenses and they're never going to leave him alone. So I think it's just important to recall, you know, in the important moments, you want Clay out there because he's the guy outside Steph that you want taking the shots. A uh, couple of things from a, an individual perspective here, or I mean, let's let's go to the team stuff first. I actually thought the the late lineup with that was incredibly small kind of has probably got overlooked here by the fact Clay made that game winner. I actually thought the unit wasn't great. Now it actually on the plus minus it probably looked like it worked once they brought Peyton in for for Looney, but they went Paul Curry. Peyton Thompson Green. That's tiny. That is really tiny. Because you, you genuinely, like what we'd seen earlier in the season, like game one against the Suns, you had Wiggins not there, and you had Kaminga, who's probably is the same height, 6'7", as Wiggins. And you also had Looney instead of Draymond, who's an extra three inches taller and a better rebounder. So there was some size there still. At least. This was as small as the Warriors could practically go. Now, maybe they think, you know, we can, we'll just double team Sabonis on every possession. Fox isn't out there. Peyton was clearly there to disrupt Malik Monk. I thought he did a pretty good job of that throughout the game. Monk made some tough shots, which, you know, offensive talent, offensively talented players are going to do. That's fine. I thought GP2 did a pretty good job. I thought he played pretty well. Uh, but it's still surprising, I think, that Steve went to such a small unit at the end of the game. And the Warriors got hurt by it a little bit in the fourth quarter. So the Kings end up with 14 offensive rebounds, which really keeps them in the game, along with the Warriors' 17 turnovers, because the Kings shot 40.9% from the floor, 31.4% from three-point range. The Warriors shot 48.1% from the floor. So they were more efficient, obviously, when they when they got shots up. Um, but as I said, 17 turnovers and uh, 14 offensive rebounds to the Kings. If the Warriors had lost that game, if Clay had missed, then you know that's what definitely what you look back to as the the issue or the the reason as to why they lost. So, uh, what is the Warriors' best five? And it, it's I mean it's a full credit to the depth of this roster. It's a full credit to Gary Payton the second who is probably the 10th man in the rotation some nights. Like, you've got the starting five. You've got Chris Paul. You've got Jonathan Kaminga, Darius Sarich, Moses Moody. Sometimes GP2 is the 10th man in the rotation. The fact that he's a legitimate closer or a legitimate closing option for Steve Kerr. Now, should he be when you've also got Chris Paul, Steph Curry out there? That's up for debate. But the fact that Steve can go to that and whatever you want to say, they they did win the game. (laughs) And so it worked out but I'm just not sure it's something you want to do moving forward. Uh, from a, a few individual aspects, uh, Andrew Wiggins, this was a clear concerted effort to get him going. And he did have a season high 14.6 of 10 shooting. Like clearly early, they want him coming off screens and going downhill to the basket. Um, there's a couple of you know out of bounds plays where they always look for him. We, see, we saw two baseline ones, I think, where... He inbounds the ball, usually to Draymond, kind of top of the perimeter. Um, Steph sets a screen to get the switch, smaller guard onto Wiggs, and he can finish uh, over them, basically, from the restricted area or just outside. So that's nice. He was efficient. His finishing around the rim was good. He was only 0 of 1 from 3, took 1-3. 
So this is kind of different wigs than what we've seen, but I think that's simply because we know his shot's not falling from the outside. So let's get him going. Let's get his confidence up. Let's build some momentum. Uh, again, season high 14 points, but for the third time in four games, uh, which is probably the, sorry, the third, no, so the fourth time in five games, I think. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, he doesn't close, right? He doesn't close. And, like, it's a talking point. It is a talking point. Uh, I think Wiggs' personality can, you know, deal with it uh, to make it, you know, he's not making it more of a talking point than it needs to be. I think he's okay with it. Uh, but ideally, you know, he knows that he'd be wanting to be out there and contributing to his team, and he knows, and I think we all know, that the Warriors' best closing five, I still think, includes Andrew Wiggins. It does. I think the, the, the closing five should be, by the end of the season, should be Steph Probably Chris Paul, Clay, Wiggs, Dre. That's probably what it is. But right now, like, Steve's going to different options because Wiggs isn't quite there, particularly when you've got a dangerous offensive option like Malik Monk and Wiggs' perimeter defense isn't quite there at this stage, and so he puts out Gary Payton a second. And then it's what I call the trust five, which I mentioned on, I think, a post-game live a couple of episodes ago. The trust five of CP, Steph, Clay, Dre, Loon. That's that's the trust five. And that's the five I think Steve will go to when, you know, the Warriors need to try and hold a lead late in the game and they're up by six, seven points of the couple of minutes remaining. I think that's that's the trust five. And then you mix and match depending on the situation of the game. And clearly Steve thought GP two was an important player to have out there with uh with Malik Monk kind of the danger that he poses. Uh Dario Saric is, is the other player I wanted to talk about because the first half was pretty rough for Dario, right? But then the second half, I mean, the second half started off pretty rough as well, but then his value really comes to the fore because he has 15 points uh, on the night. Was he? I think he's second leading scorer behind Steph with 21. The Warriors had, I think, five or six players in double figures in this one. It was a really team-orientated performance scoring-wise. Saric makes three triples in the second half. I think he went three or five from deep overall. And he might have, I'm not going to say saved his spot in the rotation because I, I don't think that was under three, but, but a slashing of some of his minutes I think he might have saved because I tweeted out at halftime, if Dario's not going to be efficient from the field, if he's not going to hit his shots from the perimeter, then... Why do you necessarily have him out there instead of Trace Jackson Davis? So TJD is a DNP coach's decision in this one. Actually, no, that's a lie. He played the final two seconds. <laughs> so Clay makes the shot. There's point two left. The uh, the Kings need a tip in, and Trace actually enters the game for extra size. So he was out there for two seconds. Uh, no, sorry, not even two seconds. Point two of a second. Wow. Uh, anyway. So he's basically a DNP. After coming off 13 points, nine rebounds, four blocks against the Pelicans on Monday. I I would have liked to see him play. I think there's a chance. Now, I know if you bring it, if you play him and you play Saric, like you're going 11 deep into the rotation. I, I get that's a struggle. Like that's a lot of players to play and, and try and build chemistry and consistency. But as I said, if Dario's not being efficient from the floor, 
if he's not hitting his outside shots, then what's he actually bringing over TJD? Because TJD's a better rebounder, a better defensive player, a stronger threat at going to the rim off the roll or as a lob threat. And Dario, I mean, the whole reason he's playing, I guess it's like it's veteran experience and IQ, we get that. But it's also like the offensive skill set of being able to shoot the ball. He's passing, although Jackson Davis is a pretty good passer, so I don't think we should discount that. But particularly at halftime, I thought, geez, Steve's going to have to be thinking about this, doesn't he? Like why he needs to have Dario out there for 20 minutes when he could potentially cut his down minutes to 12, 15, and just put Trace out there for five or six minutes, seven, eight minutes, whatever it may be. Just see how he goes, particularly alongside Chris Paul. And I mentioned that uh, on the the last episode. CP3 loves playing with Dario, but I think having a true rim-rolling threat, a lob threat, could be just as interesting and could be just as effective as having Dario Saric out there because there's times where... Dario's on the roll, and I mean, how many turnovers did he have? I actually haven't got this written down. I'll just check it quickly now. Uh, he had he had four turnovers, four turnovers for Dario Saric. So that shouldn't be happening. And there are times where he's on the roll, or he gets to the paint, and the Kings double teamed him, or even triple teamed him at times, and he was unable to find a kickout pass, and he would just lose the ball. And he would be unable to control, basically, in heavy traffic. That was a worry to me. Because if you're not going to be a great finisher around the rim, which he hasn't shown to be so far this season, then you at least need to make a, a kick-out pass to a perimeter shooter when you're getting double or triple teamed in that scenario. And too many times, he basically just fumbled the ball under any element of pressure. And so that was really frustrating. And it got to a point, I think he had a turnover early in, in, in within the first couple of minutes of his third quarter stint. And at that point, I think a lot of Warrior fans were thinking, like, we should be seeing Trace in these minutes. We really should. But credit to Dario. He kept at it. And he knocks down three triples, which helps win the game. And so I honestly think he probably, as I said, helped helped save his... 20 minutes in the rotation, I suppose. So he ends up playing, uh, ends up playing, yeah, just under 20 minutes, 1944 in this one. Uh, if not for his three triples, if not for his kind, kind of offensive scoring in that second half, then I think I'd be really pushing hard for uh, him to, to go down to 12, 13 minutes and for Jackson Davis to be playing a little bit. It's just something to monitor moving forward because I'm certainly not saying that you know Dario solidified to playing his 20 minutes on the back of hitting a few threes and, and having 15 points against the Kings. I'm not saying. I, I still think it's something to monitor. I still wouldn't be against giving Trace some minutes. So I don't know. Just let me know what you think. Should Dario Saric's minutes from 20 be, be slashed a little bit in favour of Trace Jackson-Davis? I know probably the big thing for, for Steve is he... He's giving trust in JK, and he's giving trust in Moody. And even in that Pelicans game, he gave trust to Trace and, and to Brandon Pajemski. You just know he doesn't want to play Kaminga and Jackson Davis together in the front court. <laughs> you know he does not want to do that. You know he's got a good thing running with the bench unit where the Warriors 
uh, uh, top three bench rating right now in the league, you know he doesn't want to ruin that. And as interesting as Jackson Davis might be, I think uh, I think he knows that, hey, I'm not going to be putting him and Kaminga out on the floor together. Whether there's a way that you can manipulate it so they play separately, maybe Jackson Davis plays alongside Surridge. We saw that against the Pelicans. I don't hate that at all because Surridge got bullied quite a bit as a five man yesterday by both Sabonis, who can bully a lot of players, but particularly, I think, see Surridge's barbecue chicken. And even JaVale McGee, who who is quite a funny player. Uh, it's a long way from his Shackton days, but there's still stuff with JaVale McGee where you just can't help but laugh. Like some of the like he actually played pretty well yesterday. He had that huge block on Kaminga, which was a massive highlight for him and the Kings. Uh, inc- incredible block, really. But then he has like other moments where like they're posting him up, which I think is not a good option at all. However, he's posting up Sturridge and he actually kind of made mince meat of him a couple of times. A couple of other times he goes to a you know a running sky hook at one point and misses. And I'm not sure but if I was a Kings fan, I'd be just scratching my head thinking, what are we doing here? Um, another time he kicks the ball like Jackie Chan style, like at his shoulder height. I haven't even seen a replay of that. I don't even know how it happened. But apparently he kicked the ball from legitimately shoulder height, which is Incredibly rare. He just does these things that no other NBA player can do. It's quite, it's quite funny. Um, but Surich's defense at the five is a bit of a worry, and I think playing him at the four, you probably get away with it a little bit more, depending on obviously the matchups. Who's the the opposing four? Like if he's playing on Sasha Vazenkov yesterday, like is that an issue out on the perimeter? I don't think it is. Because all really with Vizenkov you need to do is just stick to him and put a hand up on contests. Like, he's not going to go by. That's the issue with Surich is if you put him out on the perimeter, like guys will dribble by him. Like, some of these backup fours aren't going to be having the ball in their hands and attacking Surich off the dribble. They're not. So I think you can play him and Jackson Davis a little bit. And we saw what Jackson Davis was able to do against the Pels. Like, he's a really, for a guy that's 6'8", he's a strong shot-blocking presence. So it's just something I'd like to see, but it might take some injuries or some restings here and there for, for Jackson Davis to get back into the rotation, which I think is a, a slight disappointment. But otherwise, I think we'll finish it up there. Just a quick little episode. Uh, again, apologies for not doing the post-game live yesterday. I actually had a, a book launch of all things that I needed to get to uh, shortly after yesterday's game. Um, but other than that, you can uh, follow me at POC252, P-O-K-252. On Twitter, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, Warriors' next game is at Oklahoma City against the Thunder, who are coming off a loss to the Pels yesterday. I actually watched that game before the Warriors won. The the, uh, the Thunder up by 22 in the second quarter and ended up losing that game. I think the Pelicans at one stage were on a extended 73-37 to 37 run or something. They went from down 22 to up 14, quite a turnaround there. And we know what the Pelicans um, and their struggles that they had against the Warriors on Monday. So the Thunder were young, talented, led by Shea Gildish-Alexander, um, my Australian mate, Josh Giddy. Uh, Jalen Williams. Like They are just a, a talented, you know, Chet Holmgren's obviously had a, a strong start. Incredibly talented young team. It's going to be a tough one for the Warriors. 
Uh, we'll see if these this road record can continue, obviously, winning their first three road games. Now they've got four to come here, seven of their first nine. I spoke uh, a few episodes ago, I thought a 5-5 five and five record after 10 games would be positive. Well, they're now at 4-1. and one. Can they get to 7-3? and three? Like if they were to win three of their next five, I think that would be impressive. And I think that's more than capable based on this strong start that we've seen uh, to the regular season. It's been a fantastic start, an impressive start, an enjoy- enjoyment one, uh, for an enjoyable enjoyable one. <laughs> I can't speak at the moment. It's just gone 7am. It's pretty tough. Uh, an enjoyable one for Warrior fans so far. Uh, but we'll finish it up there. And thank you for tuning in if you've got to this point in the episode. Uh, hoping to do a post-game live against the Thunder on Friday, Saturday for me. Cheers, guys.